This is a season where we are celebrating the lead up. We're celebrating in the lead up to the coming celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And every single week as we light one of our Advent candles, there is a specific focus to our Advent, uh, to our candle lighting, and then also to our focus of our church gathering for each week. And so last week we lit the first candle, which is known frequently and traditionally as the prophet's candle or also the candle of hope. This is the candle that we light at the very beginning of our Advent journey as we remember the hope and the, pro the prophetic promise that one day the Messiah would come. And we get to look back on that and know that Jesus is, in fact, himself the Messiah. Amen? And so today Liz lit the second candle, which is traditionally known as the Bethlehem candle. Now, it's also sometime call, sometimes called the faith candle or the candle of preparation. So depending on who's leading your Advent celebration, you might have heard it uh, called one of those three titles. Uh, but when I think of the Bethlehem candle, I, I often think of three distinct things. I, I think of a, a lot of different stuff as I am lighting the Advent and going through the Advent tradition. Uh, but there are three of the, those things that I want to share with you today. Today I want to invite you to think with me about the journey to Bethlehem. I want to invite you to think with me about the promise of Bethlehem. And then third, I want to invite you to think with me about the welcome in Bethlehem. And what all of these things, as we think about them, what they might invite us to do in our own lives this Advent season as we're coming towards the celebration of the birth of Jesus. Uh, would you pray with me today as we get ready to, to dig into some of these thoughts today? Lord, we welcome you. We say thank you to you. We honor you. Lord, we thank you for the, the gathering together of your body as we can get into your word. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is present here. Jesus, we thank you that you have already come, that you have died, risen, and will come again. We thank you for the completion of this story. And as we're sitting, living in the middle of waiting for you to come again and to fully complete your story in our lives and in your world and in your church, we give you our honor, we give you our attention now, and we ask that by your Holy Spirit you would illuminate your word, open up our hearts to understand and our minds to understand your word. Would you cause us to be different when we walk out of this place and out of this moment because of what you would say to us today by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, let's start off uh, by looking at or thinking for a few minutes about the journey to Bethlehem. Now, Luke's gospel tells us that Joseph and Mary traveled to a town called Bethlehem and that they came from a town called Nazareth. Uh, we have this historical marker actually in Luke's gospel so that you can have an, a little bit of an idea of when all of this happened. Luke, actually the way that he writes his gospel, he's interested in some specific details. So when Luke adds a detail into the story, you really are good a good student of the word if you stop and wonder, why was it that Luke added those details? Why did he say things that he said in the way that he said them? But listen again to just the beginning of what you already heard Liz read for us a few moments ago. It says, Luke writes this, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. So that marks that Luke is telling us this happened during the reign of Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. Now, you can look back through historical records and see a bunch of different uh, registrations or what we might call a census 
Now, when there's a census in our era right now, like there was one, I think, in 2020, right? Uh, when there's a census, uh, raise your hand if you had to get up and, and move back to the city where you were born in order for the census to be taken. You didn't have to do that, right? There's all kinds of technology now, and they, they just kind of, I mean... First of all, the government knows where you live already. They already know everything about you, probably more than you would like them to if you're completely honest about it. So you didn't have to pack up and move out of town in order to honor this registration. Uh, and then Luke actually gives us another little bit of a detail. He says, this first census took place while Quirinius was governor in Syria. Now, if you study the historical records, then you actually can, and look at what historians have, have kind of marked this as, is that there was a census given uh, during this time by these specific leaders, and historians have placed this census somewhere between 6 and 4 B.C., so this was, this was right before what we would call zero. Uh, so we're already seeing a little bit of what Luke is placing, uh, in, where he's placing this in human history. And so B.C., if you remember your, your old history classes, B.C. counted down backwards to zero, and then A.D. counted up forwards. Uh, and and in, in, we, in, our, in our calendar system, the way the calendar has been designed is we actually mark the birth of Christ. We all kind of think, well, that's you know before Christ and after death was what I always used to think. Uh, but it turns out that's actually not at all what that means. But, but we always just would assume that that was like the, the birth of Jesus was day one of the, the, the counting up, right? And everything else was just kind of falling apart down to zero. And that's what we always used to teach people. Well, it turns out that Jesus probably wasn't born on minute zero, that he was probably born somewhere between 6 and 4 B.C. And Luke gives us this detail so that we can mark the birth of Jesus, who, for the record was a real historical person. So we can mark him in the historical record. And then we can see Luke gives us more detail that the result of the census was that, and it says in Luke, starting in verse 3, that everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. Luke, chill on the details, man. Like, that is a, that is a Paul lean status run-on sentence right there. Uh, he is giving us these details for a really specific reason. He wants us to know this really happened, and he wants you to understand the nature of this historical event. Let's take a look at a couple of things together. Joseph was originally from Bethlehem, and because of this registration, we would call this today a census, he had to go back home to Bethlehem. Now, just so that you understand, if you looked at it, <clears throat> on a map, you would find out that Bethlehem is about 100 miles from Nazareth according to the path that they most likely traveled uh, in order to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem at that time. Now, that would be like walking from Lancaster, California to Santa Barbara, maybe even a little bit further north along the coast of Santa Barbara. Okay, Santa Barbara is about 95 miles from here. Could you imagine driving to Santa Barbara? Yeah, you could get there and have a nice dinner on the coast this evening, you know, celebrate the second Sunday of Advent while maybe seeing if before the sun goes down you could spot a couple of dolphins, have a nice romantic uh, dinner on the coast, or, you know, take some of your bros or your sisters out there and you could enjoy an evening and then be back before bedtime in Santa Barbara. 
or from Santa Barbara. Now, for Joseph and Mary to travel the same distance, they did not have a car. And there was no Uber service. There was no Amtrak to get them from one place to the other in a relatively short amount of time. The world was a much larger place in those days, and so it would have taken them anywhere between four to seven days to travel, most likely on foot, maybe with an animal to carry Mary, maybe. You got to think about what Joseph did for a living and whether or not he could have even afforded to have his wife travel in style. So there's a really good chance that this, this pregnant woman was walking most, if not all, of the way for four to seven days. Now, I have been married to, uh, to my wife for 18 years. We have two children. And if when she was pregnant with either Hannah or Selah, I had said, all right, babe, we're going to walk from Lancaster to Santa Barbara. I'm not sure I'm alive to preach this sermon to you. Right? Joseph had the advantage that this was a government mandate. He didn't have an option. But I'm sure Mary was neither comfortable nor pleased with this arrangement. Uh, so you would think, uh, my thinking is, and I think many historians would say this, probably because Mary was pregnant took a little on the longer side. So you would think they're on the road for about a week, right? Now, there's probably a lot of other people, maybe hundreds of other people that they would have crossed on the way who would maybe have going from Bethlehem to Nazareth or, or down the road to, to some other town. Um, this actually reminds me a lot of, of another trip, that, a trip that I took one time. Um, I flew out to Maryland where my brother lives in, on the East Coast, and uh, I was visiting there. My dad and my stepmom had flown from Scotland to come and visit, and so we were all converging in Maryland. And the plan was that my dad had actually rented a, a, like an Airbnb on the coast of North Carolina, on a place called the Outer Banks. If you've ever heard of Kitty Hawk, historically famous place, uh, there's this little tiny strip of land uh, just separated from the actual uh, proper shoreline of North Carolina. And so we were going to go out there and kind of both ways that you look out of the windows of this house, you would see water. It was going to be incredibly beautiful. And so I flew out there to spend some time with my family. And we, we meet at my brother's house. And here's how this trip goes. We get there, and my dad realizes that he's lost his wallet. He left it in Heathrow. So he has to spend half a day canceling all of his cards and doing all of that stuff, which internationally is very difficult to do. And then he also realizes that he has completely lost his luggage. The airline uh, didn't have his baggage. And then that came a little bit later. So now we had to wait. We had to delay our departure from Maryland to North Carolina by one whole day because my dad's wallet situation. And then we had to actually drive an hour and a half back into Baltimore from Hagerstown to pick up my dad's suitcase. So we drive back. My, my step mother uh, gets car sick on the way back, and this is how we begin our trip, right? So the next day, this is now day two, we should have already been in North Carolina, uh, we decide, okay, now we're going to leave, uh, but there was a hurricane, and this hurricane was trying to decide whether or not it was going to make landfall on North Carolina, or if it was going to turn, and we decided, let's just say that it's going to turn. So we're going to go. So we, we left, and what should have taken five hours then took us two and a half more days in the car to get from Maryland to North Carolina. And when we finally got there, uh, we actually had to stay overnight outside of the place we were trying to get to for one more night 
and not make it in until the next day because the place where we were staying, all of the roads were still under the ocean. Yeah. So we get there, and we have this great night. We finally have this wonderful meal uh, out at the house, and we play games, and we stay up super late, and it's fun. And then I go home the next day. So what was supposed to be a wonderful time at a house on the coast, beauty all around us, turned into a road trip for almost a week, right? Have you ever been on a road trip? Have you ever been on a road trip with children? Yeah, road trip with children starts two hours after you leave the house. What's the first thing that somebody says? Are we there yet? And then what happens, parents? You know what happens when you get to the place that you've been hyping for months since you announced that we're doing a road trip? One of your children says, is this it? Right? There's something about a road trip that we hype it up in our minds, and then it's, it's longer than we want it to be. Our kids absolutely hate it, and they never love the thing as much while they're there. You know, and then the, the almost more annoying thing is that years later on, when your kids are a little bit older, after they got there and they went, is this really it? And they were annoying for the whole car ride there. Years later, they're like, man, we took a road trip one time. It was so great. And they're like bragging about this awesome road trip that you wanted to murder them while you were on for half the time. <laughs> I'm just speaking from other people's experiences from what I've heard. <laughs> when, I think, when I actually really think about the journey to Bethlehem, what I, I don't actually think about the time that it took. That's, that's not really a thought. And I don't think that most of us really think about that. I think we probably think more about the destination, right? So Bethlehem was this small town. Less than 2,000 people lived there at the time, and it was a relatively insignificant place when, uh, historically speaking, globally speaking. Uh, the Jews understood that it had some historical and even prophetic significance. We'll talk about that in a minute. But what strikes me about all of this is the smallness of it. As I'm driving from Maryland to North Carolina, it seems like this big, massive situation. But in historical significance, I'm just a guy in a car with my dad driving towards a flooded town. It's happened before. It'll probably happen again. Just a guy in the car with his dad driving on a freeway, right? Historically, it's not, it's not a huge thing. If you take the Jesus factor out of this story, this is just one young couple among hundreds, maybe thousands of others who had traveled at the time on a road from one small town to another. But Jesus was born into obscurity like this on purpose. Right? The second candle of Advent called the Bethlehem candle is lit to remind us that God comes out of a humble and simple place on purpose. It reminds us that he meets us in our own humble and simple places, in our own obscurity. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you can relate to a a, a sense of feeling smallness in your own life, like you're just one person in the big, wide world. Or maybe you can relate to the, the slowness and the discomfort of Mary and Joseph's journey, right? Are we there yet, God? Or you're at the destination that God told you that you would get to, and you're like, is this really it, God? 
Is this really, is this really what you had planned for me? This isn't, isn't what I planned, right? When I was a younger person, I started out in ministry. I was 17 years old. And something about starting out in ministry at 17 years old for a relatively outgoing, uh, charismatic young man has a way of making you think that you are the greatest thing that has ever happened to the world and the church. And so I had my life, (laughs) a person in the back who's known me since I was that age is nodding viciously right now because she remembers. Yeah. (laughs) I was convinced. I had it all mapped out. I was going to be wildly popular, right? By the time I was 20, remember, I'm 17, associate pastor at, it turns out, this church. Uh, I, I had it all mapped out. I was, my, my rise to church fame was going to be quick and rapid and inspiring. And everyone was going to know that Tim Lee was one of the greatest, most gifted young preachers the world has ever seen. And everyone's going to hear my preaching, and they're going to be like, man, we are so blessed to be alive at the same time as this guy. Right? That's nice of you to say. The funny thing is, at 37, I am not at all where I thought I was going to be when I was 17. Um, I'm not as far along. I haven't had as much success as I had mapped out for myself, but it turns out I'm actually in a much better place than I would have been if if God had let me lead my own life. The, The journey to Bethlehem teaches us that it's better to be led by God into his plan than to be known by people for our plans, right? But more than that, this journey reminds us that God sees us when we feel small, when we feel like we haven't measured up. I think this is important for us to think about during this Christmas season because we live in a world that says that success is measured by how many people know about the things that you have done, right? So I pick up my phone at every opportunity and I take pictures about the things that I've done so that people will know what I have done. So people will know how important I am, how good of a cook I am, you know, how happy my kids are when the camera's on. (laughs) This is how we measure success, how many people are following you. So we're pressured to grow and to share, but God says that true success is when he knows us, right? The Bethlehem candle should be a reminder of something that Jesus once said in Luke chapter 12, verse 32. He says, don't be afraid, little flock, because your father delights to give you the kingdom. He doesn't say fame. He doesn't say popularity. He doesn't say money. He doesn't say status. He doesn't say earthly power. He doesn't say your political candidate. He says the kingdom. But he calls us a little flock. He doesn't say, don't be afraid, little flock, because you're going places, because people will know your story. What if nobody does? 
I was, I was listening to somebody recently talk about the woman who came in and poured oil on Jesus' feet and anointed his feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and how Jesus, yeah, it, it, Jesus says this to the, to the disciples, and some of them are incredulous about it, and he says, he says, what this woman has done is so important that for the rest of human history, wherever stories are told about me, this woman's story will also be told. You know what's really interesting? I heard somebody say, I never noticed this before. It's incredibly interesting that the woman is not naked named in this story because the woman's name isn't as important as her worship so the story isn't about let's celebrate the name of the woman but let's celebrate the act of the woman so we can be inspired because true success is are you willing to pour out the oil of your own worship to Jesus even when it costs you greatly but no one will know your name right so if you're feeling small in this season, if you feel like your journey has been too long or too hard, can I just encourage you today, God sees you. God loves you. And he still has a good destination for you in mind. I was sitting on Lancaster Boulevard yesterday getting ready to watch my daughters walk in the city, in the parade, down Lancaster Boulevard. And as people were beginning to come and mingle, uh, there were groups of parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and people just kind of standing and sitting all along the side. And this woman began to walk down the street and she was very loudly saying all kinds of really terrible sorts of things. It was just not an appropriate expression. And she was very, very loud. And you could tell in that moment that this woman either had some kind of mental issues that she was dealing with or she was on some kind of a substance. One of those causes was making her be very, very loud, very inappropriate as she was walking down the street. And I was struck by my reaction. I was struck by initially feeling like, oh, this, this woman's kind of messing up this beautiful moment. What a great moment we're in. We're about to celebrate all the kids and the grandkids and all. And this woman comes walking by. And then I immediately felt a sense of the Holy Spirit reminding me as if God was saying, I see this woman. I know what got her to this point, and I know where she's going. And then I was struck by how incredibly small she was in the crowd of people and in the crowd of the, the, the planet that we live on. And God would say, I know where this one has been. And I know where she's going. And I, and I had a sense of his compassion for her. And so then I just found myself praying, God bless this woman, take care of her, give her a safe place to be. If you feel small today, God would say to you, I see you on your way to Bethlehem. The beautiful thing is that God also, in the journey to Bethlehem, also gives us a promise of Bethlehem. There's this great, incredible promise about Bethlehem. And in fact, Luke begins his gospel with the details that he gave us, again, for a very specific reason, not just that we would know when Jesus was born, but where he was born. Bethlehem was this tiny town, significant uh, or insignificant outside of Jewish understanding of what Bethlehem was all about. We understand now, we know this, and the Jewish people at the time would have known that Bethlehem was a very important place in God's plan. Uh, for example, Bethlehem was the birthplace of King David. And 700, give or take 700 years before Jesus' birth, Micah made a, a prophetic declaration about 
this place called Bethlehem. In Micah 5.2, we see, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel, whose origins are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf. This is a messianic prophecy, a prophecy about the Savior of the world, who would come and be born in Bethlehem. So Bethlehem is small, but it was full of, like, big, all kinds of big promise, right? And if you were a Jew at the time, you would have absolutely known that. But then if you had heard that God chose Joseph and Mary to be the parents of Jesus, the Messiah, you would have scratched your head a little bit because you would have said, wait a second, they live in Nazareth. That doesn't seem to make sense. That's a, that's, that's, that's a Santa Barbara away. But, but God is so good that he knew that there would be a census. And he knew that Joseph was a descendant of King David, who was born in Bethlehem. And then he knew that Joseph was himself from Bethlehem. So when this secular government official makes a decree that on the surface just seems like a big, fat inconvenience for a pregnant woman, it actually is the, the perfect way that God says, I'm going to get my plan perfectly dialed in. The lesson is that God is always fully able to keep every detail of his promise. Oh, the parents of Jesus don't live in Bethlehem? <laughs> don't worry, I got this. Right? The application for us is to trust that when God says he's going to do a thing, he is always going to do exactly what he said he would do. So we don't need to sweat the details. We just need to follow God's leadership, trust, watch him do what he said he would do. I, le I learned this the hard way. Uh, when I was, again, uh, an associate pastor here, I started when I was about 17. About five years later, I had decided that, um, well, there's a lot of, I won't get into all the details, but, uh, but th there, was a, there was a long, long journey where God had said when I was 17 years old um, that, that I was going to one day be the senior pastor of this church. Now, this is, a, this is an interesting story to tell like this because now I'm standing here telling you the story as the senior pastor of this church. So just about 20 years later, I'm now standing in the fulfillment of this prophecy. But in between that was a lot of days where I was pretty convinced that it was never going to happen. About five years after I was uh, on staff at this church and I had heard the Lord say that I was going to be the senior pastor of this church one day, we had heard the Lord say, we need to go. Now, just for context and in, in the interest of full disclosure, we did hear the Lord tell us it was time for us to leave, but the way we did it was really immature. And so we basically just were like, hey, we're leaving. Bye. And so we packed up and moved to Arizona. And we burned all the bridges that you could possibly burn relationally in the church that had raised you and trained you. And we did it in a really, really bad way. Have you ever done something that God told you to do, but you did it the wrong way? I, sorry, let me ask you that question different. Have you ever been a human? Okay, so, so we were human, 
And we spent a year in Arizona, and then we came home, and then we were on staff at the Highlands, which is a great church in Palmdale. We were on that church staff for two and a half years. We planted a church called Life Church on Mother's Day in 2011, and that church grew, and we were really blessed by how God was using that church. Some of you met us and, and maybe even met Jesus in that church, and we were so excited about all the things that God was doing. And all the while, God kept really annoyingly reminding me that he had said I was supposed to be the church here. And for a while, I thought he was only reminding me that. So I would stay humble because of all the ways that God was still using me, even though I had messed up his plan for my life, which was to be the pastor of this church. But that wasn't possible because I was a big dummy. So, okay, God, thanks for saying it again. I'll just stay humble. All right, Lord, thank you for using me despite my being a big dummy. And I remember the day that Jan Spencer, who was the pastor of this church, he was the pastor that hired me when I was 17 as well and was still the pastor of this church. And he was the one who said, you're going to be the pastor of this church one day as well. He agreed with God prophetically. And then I think we were both not sure when I left. And he called me one day and asked me if I wanted to merge our churches together. And so not too long after that, we merged Life Church, which was the church that we planted, with Living Way Foursquare Church, which was the name of the church at the time. And on September 31st, 2016, God fulfilled a promise he had given me when I was 17 years old. And interestingly, Pastor Jan and I were talking about this one time, and I said, how do, we, how do you make sense, like from your perspective, how do you make sense of the thing that God said I was going to be the pastor here? And I left, and I did it so poorly and then now God has redeemed all of that part of my story, and here I am, and we're doing this merge, and you're going to retire, and I'm going to take the church into the next uh, part of our history. And he said this. He said, Tim, I've, I figured out that if you had stayed, you would have never been led to the places you went. You would have never learned the lessons you learned, the good ones and the easy ones and the hard ones and the, you know. He said, you never would have become the pastor this church needs to lead this church into the future if you had just stayed here because you've learned other things in different places. And so he had this insight about how I needed to go on this crazy journey and needed to do this thing and I needed somehow for it to look like I was never going to be able to come back. And there's a beautiful thing about this story for me that I've always been so amazed at how God gave me a word when, it was, when I was 17 and I was so full of myself that myself had to be dismantled so that when God finally kept his word, it was definitely obviously him. And not just that I was good at preaching, which I'm still not sure that I'm worthy of any of that kind of compliment. The, the point is that Jan was right and that God, when he gave me his word, was right. I thought that I had positioned myself to make God's plan impossible. And God says, Tim, I said a thing to you. I am always able to do what I said I would do. Right? Now, certainly in the middle of God's sovereignty, we understand that we have a part in partnering with God. And if you're getting in the way of God, then you need to learn the lessons about how to get out of God's way. But that might be a different sermon. I think the point of this Advent season in this moment is for us to learn to trust that God has a plan for your life. And whatever it looks like in this moment, he's not done with it yet. Amen. So Bethlehem, full of promise, prophetic promise, that it would be this really special, significant place, even though hundreds of years had gone by. It's just this tiny little place, and God says, I'm not done with my promise there yet. So there's a journey, and there's a promise. And then thirdly, I'd like to invite you to think with me about the welcome that happens in Bethlehem. 
So when I, when I think about this part of the story, about the arrival into Bethlehem, I always think about the innkeeper, right? The innkeeper is the one who we tell his story like this. Joseph and Mary arrive in Bethlehem right as Mary is about to give birth. They knock on every single door in town with no luck because, remember, there's a census and other people are in town too. You should have gotten here earlier, right? And then finally, they get to the very last place in Bethlehem. They knock on the door. It's a small inn, and it does have a no-vacancy sign lit because, miraculously, in the way we tell this story, there's electricity uh, at that time. And, and then the innkeeper kind of opens, like he opens opens the door, kind of like pokes his head out a little bit. I've actually seen it portrayed like this in some movies about this moment uh, where the innkeeper kind of like opens the door. He doesn't really want to open the door, but he's like going to open the door. He's probably got his foot on the inside so they can't push open, right? And like, there's no room, right? And then he closes the door and then his wife tells him that he's being a punk. And so he opens the door again. He's like, all right, you know what? We've got a barn in the back, right? We tell the story either like that, or we open the door, like the, the or the innkeeper opens the door, and he's like this benevolent, gracious man. He's like, "Yes, I will welcome you into the extra space that I have. No one else in town is as kind as I am, right?" So he's either like a kind of a punk, or he's this hero, depending on how we tell the story. The, the problem I have is that we're telling the story wrong. For two reasons. We tell the story the wrong way because of a liar and because of a misunderstanding. So let's talk about a liar for a second. That's always fun to talk about in church. Okay, so uh, the, the details of the story of Jesus' birth are, are, are largely, the way you have probably heard and or told the story about the birth of Jesus is probably wrong. Because you were lied to. There was a story once called the Proto-Evangelium of James. That's a fun book title, Right? The Proto-Evangelion of James. Probably an album title. If you're in a band, you're looking for an album title. It's available. Um, this this Proto-Evangelium of James, which Proto-Evangelium means uh, pre-gospel. So it's, it's, it's purporting itself to be a story about the time before the gospel. Okay? Um, so, so it was written by a guy who in the text claims to have been the, the brother of James or the half-brother of Jesus. It claims to be written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. The story claims details like Jesus was born in a cave because there was no other room in town. He includes details like Mary was already in labor when they arrived in Bethlehem and that the Magi visited Jesus on the very same night he was born. So all of the details that we usually tell about the story Many of them come from the Proto-Evangelium of James, this story that claims to be written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. The problem is that there was no way it was written by James because it was penned 150 years after Jesus was born. James was very much dead. So the church reads this story and they immediately reject it. They say this is not inspired, so we, we reject this. It's not going to be canonized into Scripture. But over time, people who were wrestling with wanting this story to be more exciting than it actually was in some ways that it's actually very normal and maybe even somewhat boring on purpose, uh, they decided, you know what? This Proto-Evangelium of James story has some pretty fun details. It's like pre-Hollywood. We make a story more exciting than it actually was to sell the tickets. 
right? So the details wind their way into the popular telling of the nativity story over time. 2,000 years later, we have this popular narrative, which is dramatic, but not exactly completely true. Part of the reason we tell the story about the innkeeper the way that we do is because we were lied to, like 2,000 years ago, and, and we just didn't, it's been a long time. We, we didn't know. But, but then... It, Part of the problem is that we should know. And the reason that we don't catch that this is not an accurate depiction of the story, maybe, I don't know if this is going to step on your toes, maybe it's just because you don't read the Bible. Um, Because if you actually just read the Bible, you'll get a much closer telling of the story to the actual biblical story. But even then, you might still get mixed up because of one single word. Most translations would translate Luke chapter 2 verse 7 like this. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths, laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. We read the word inn and we think like hotel, right? All the motel sixes were full. The problem is that the Bible does not actually say the word inn. The Young's literal translation translates it, there was no room for them in the guest chamber. And the Christian Standard Bible, which Liz read to you from earlier, says there was no guest room available for them. Luke actually uses the word kataluma in the original language. The original word that that, that Luke uses in in the original Greek writing of his gospel would better be translated upper room or guest room. Upper room is something you've heard before, right? It's like the place where Jesus had communion with his disciples was in a guest room in a house. Danny was leading us through communion today, and he was reminding us of the time where Jesus broke the bread and gave the the wine. The Passover meal of Jesus and his disciples before the crucifixion happened in a guest room. The, uh, the, the disciples were locked in the, a guest room, afraid of what was going to happen if they walked outside after the death of Jesus on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came like rushing wind and fire over everyone's head, and people began to speak in other tongues, and the New Testament church was born, and thousands of people converted to become followers of Jesus Christ on the first day of the church. That day started in a guest room. That's interesting. See, we have to understand the world and the culture that Jesus was actually born into. First of all, Joseph was almost certainly not looking for an Airbnb. He was most likely staying with family. Remember, census. He's going home where he would have been welcomed by family members, right? Secondly, I I think that we would have to understand that they were still in the house, not in a guest room. The popular story is there's, you know, a barn-like structure kind of carved out of the side of a rock somewhere, throw some hay on the ground, there's definitely a manger, absolutely a donkey and a cow, and one to three sheep, depending on how many of them fit into your boxed nativity set. They weren't in a cave or a barn. They were in a home. This this is actually what the typical 
um, house would have looked like at the time. We, I think we have a picture of it. Do we, do we have that available? There it is. So most likely two stories. The family would sleep in the upstairs, and then they would uh, do kind of all of their other gatherings and the meals and stuff would have, would have taken place upstairs. And then they would have had animals. You would have think like, you think there, there's no... There's, there's no vons for them to run to when they needed to get eggs and milk. They would have just gone downstairs to the chickens and the cow that they own. And if they don't personally own those animals, maybe it's goat's milk. Uh, maybe they would be in a barter system with their neighbors in their community who also own animals. And those animals would come into the house. If they're outside during the day, they would come into the house at night and sleep on the, on the ground floor of the home. Interestingly enough, that's actually also part of the way that they would heat the upper floor. Because the body temperature from the animals would actually rise into the upper floor. And there were different systems and ways that they would heat that second floor where people would actually live or sleep. The kitchen was down on the bottom, so they would cook the meals down on the first floor, bring that upstairs, and eat that on the second floor. Now, when you had guests over, you would either have a designated guest room or you would give up your own space and move downstairs while you had guests and let them stay in your sleeping quarters. And depending on the arrangement that you had at the time, you might have, um, you, you might have more than one family living in a home like this at a time, which is why these were designed with a guest quarter or a spare room. And so when Joseph and Mary show up to a family member's house, they were welcomed in as family members. But Mary's about to give birth. At some point during her stay, she gives birth to a baby. Now, in Jewish culture, you have to understand the world that Jesus was born into means that this woman who is about to give birth was going to be referred to as ritually unclean for a period of time, which means she was not allowed to just hang out with the rest of the people in the house. She had to be put into a separate room. Now, because there was, Luke tells us, no room in the guest space, that tells us there were probably other family members coming into Bethlehem because of the census, and they had already taken up that guest space. Add on to that the detail that Mary was going to be unclean because she was going to give birth. And now we can begin to understand why you would ask Mary and Joseph to spend time in a place where there might be a manger. It's not in a barn or a cave where Jesus was born. He was welcomed into somebody's house as a family member. And Jesus brought life into the kitchen, into the dining room, into the place where your livelihood happens, into your very living quarters. Jesus brings living power, right? I think this is actually a really, really big deal. Joseph and, Joseph and Mary did not go to a hotel and find a no vacancy and get lucky enough to stay in the shed out back. They were welcomed into the home of a relative. They stayed there for some extended period of time. Verse 6 tells us the days were fulfilled for Mary to give birth. The idea of this story is not that Mary shows up and her water is broken and Joseph's like, quickly, we just need to find a place. And so he settles for the barn out back. He was welcomed in 
in. Mary was able to lay her head down somewhere and rest and breathe for a minute until Jesus was born at the time as it arrived. That's what the detail in verse 6 would tell us. Mary gives birth most likely in the downstairs area because the upstairs was already taken, because she would have been considered unclean. The problem with the innkeeper narrative is it makes him this mysterious hero instead of a member of a family. It makes the story fantastic in the ways that it's actually supposed to be incredibly normal. Jesus was born into a small town in a normal family home. So the question after looking at all of that for us is how are you doing this Advent season welcoming Jesus into your life? Will you let him be in the places where your proverbial animals are pooping? Will you let him bring life into your kitchen, into your home? Will you let him bring life into every area of your life? Not as, not, not as an innkeeper, as if God is in some crisis as a homeless person and, and what he's really looking for in his desperation is to be welcomed by you. God is not in need of your welcome. You are in need of his life. Where you don't welcome him and he goes, oh, thank you. Thank me. They welcomed me. That's not how God responds to us this Christmas season. As we welcome him, he says to us, this is going to be so good for you that you welcome me as a family member, to welcome Jesus in with care and with attention. Mary was not out there with Joseph who had never taken a Lamaze class, who didn't know how to deliver a baby. He, he was there as the father with other family members, which tells you this, there were other women there with Mary when Jesus was born, caring for her, delivering her child. We welcome guests, and it might actually make our house feel a little bit cramped if you've ever had the in-laws over. All of a sudden, you're more aware of the pile of laundry that is crammed into that one space in your bedroom where if the door does get open, they can't see in, but you are praying to Jesus that that door stays closed the whole time, right? You're suddenly more aware of that one place in your hallway where there's like a, like a nick in the stucco, and, and you're really, really, really hoping that your, your mother-in-law doesn't see that one place or like the leaky faucet or, you know, that one cupboard drawer that doesn't close quite right, and you're really hoping that she doesn't notice it. Hey, if one thing, you've been thankful for COVID because nobody's come over to your house for a while. <laughs> there is a drawer. We fixed the thing in the wall. Sometimes the faucet still leaks. But what about you? I mean, is there a drawer? Is there, a is there a laundry pile? Is there a thing that you would invite Jesus into your house like an in-law rather than like a savior? Is there, is there a place in your life where you would say, Jesus, you could come in under some conditions, and when it gets uncomfortable, we're going to need some space. 
we might actually, if we were honest with ourselves, wish that we could invite Jesus to the outskirts of our property. And Jesus says, I did not come to be born in your cave. I came to be born in your living room. I, I didn't come to just be born in your mind where you theologically understand and historically believe that this is a real person. I came to be born in your heart. And if that's going to be how we're going to have a relationship, you must welcome me in. We must become family. And I get to touch and say and talk about everything. Which also means that his love and his grace can fix everything. Amen? The Bethlehem story invites us to think about the way we are following Jesus on our own journey. It invites us to, to think about uh, the, our expectations of what the journey would be like or what it will be like when we get there. And, and it invites us to think about how we are welcoming Jesus into every space of our lives. So again, as we wrap up this time together today, let me ask you, are there places in your own life where you have not welcomed Jesus to love you? You know the answer to that, by the way, especially if you're familiar with the Pentecostal environment. You know the answer to that if there's a place in your heart where if I were to invite the prophetic people in our church to come and stand on the stage with a microphone that you would get nervous. Are you feeling any kind of resentment or frustration about any of the places that God has led you or the places where he has not led you? Have you grown weary because the journey has been longer or more difficult than you had hoped? If you had a moment to say anything to God in light of the second candle of Advent, what might you say? In fact, why don't you take that moment now? Can I invite you just to close your eyes? If you feel comfortable, if you feel safe in this moment, would you join me in a moment of just sitting before God? And with your eyes closed, I want to invite you to make sure that you take a breath. Remember that Jesus loves you in this moment. And if there's anything about the journey of your life or the destination of your life or the places that you are or are not welcoming him into. If there's anything that you would need to say to Jesus now, I want to give you space to speak with him in prayer. Jesus, as we talk with you, I thank you that you listen. I thank you that you are present. Thank you that you love us. As we confess sin to you today, I thank you that you are gracious to us. As we confess to you our frustrations and our confusions today, I thank you that you are wisdom and you speak to us. Would you give us grace where we need it, favor where we need it, invitation where we feel uninvited, love where we feel unloved and condemned. We receive your grace. We receive your presence today. And in fact, I want to end this moment of prayer in the same way that Liz began our time focusing on the Bethlehem candle. And so we say, Jesus, having lit the second candle of Advent in this season, we continue to place our hope in you.
We thank you, God, for blessing us with the light of your presence. Our faith is in you as you lead us on the journey of our life. Help us to prepare our hearts to welcome you into every area of our lives. Bless us as we place our faith in you. And bless the world through us as we share the light of our faith with others. In Jesus' name, amen.